Hi, my name is Dr. Cliff Tribue. I'm Associate Professor in the Department of Orthopedics at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. You are listening to the first national radio channel created specifically for medical professionals, ReachMD. Every advance in medical technology has a human price to pay. When we unlocked the secret of the gene, we opened a Pandora's box of not only ethical issues, but tough choices that patients need to make. Choices that, according to our next guest, we need to understand from their point of view. You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host, and with us today from Moscow is Masha Gessen, a writer, journalist, and author of the book we're discussing today, Blood Matters. And she's also a carrier of the BRCA gene. Welcome, Masha. Thank you. Good to be here. And once again, the book we're talking about today is your book entitled Blood Matters, From Inherited Illness to Designer Babies. Uh, you've lived in Moscow, also resided in the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about your life and especially your writing and, and start to tell us your story? Well, yeah, that's um, as far as the book is concerned, that's one story. Basically what happened was about four years ago. I was in the U.S. for a year um, as a journalism fellow at Harvard, and I had some time in my hands. So partly because of that, actually, I got tested for the genetic mutation that predisposes women to breast and ovarian cancer. And um, my mother had died of breast cancer. Her aunt had died of ovarian cancer. I was 37 years old, so I was well in the risk age. And I had had one ICSI mammogram, my first mammogram, in fact, which is part of what made me want to, to get tested. So I tested positive for uh, a mutation in the BRCA1 gene, and this particular mutation is said to expose me to an 87% lifetime risk of breast cancer and a roughly a 50% lifetime risk of ovarian cancer. So... Um, I started trying to make a decision about what to do. I felt completely overwhelmed. As it turned out, I was not prepared to get this information, even though I had known for many, many years that I was at risk, and for some years that there was a 50% chance probably that I, that I had uh, that I was a carrier for a mutation. Um, I felt like the counseling I received was really inadequate for my situation, um, and I think in general it's inadequate for this situation. The sort of the counseling hasn't quite caught up with the with the practice. Um, of testing women for these sorts of mutations. And um, and I, I tried to work through the literature on my own. Uh, that was extremely difficult. But I had started out as a medical reporter. And so what I decided to do was pitch a series of stories to the online magazine Slate. And what I said to them was, um, I'll write um, an eight-piece series where I will not only talk to geneticists and oncologists, but I will also talk to psychologists. And I, will, I ended up talking to a behavioral economist. I ended up talking to many people who were in some way or another in, in a similar situation. And at the end of the series, I'll tell people what I'm going to do. And that's what I did. And while I was in the process of writing that series, um, I realized that I had sort of landed in, in this kind of parallel world, a universe where people were making decisions based on genetic information decisions about uh, medical decisions and life decisions. And so that's that's how the book was born. Okay. So the physicians you spoke to initially and the counselors, you said that you felt that they were inadequate. Were they inadequate in dealing with medical information or with, with the whole personal side of this? I think that the whole philosophy of genetic counseling is not adequate to the task. I don't think it's the counselor's fault. Uh, I think the problem is with the approach. The approach is non-directive counseling, and uh, the idea actually goes back to a time when genetic counseling was provided to pregnant women in a situation when abortion was illegal, which uh, actually for our purposes what that means is the ultimate decision about the abortion was made not by the woman, but by the doctor, by the medical practitioner. And so the counselor was there not to help the woman make a decision, but to sort of inform 
and get her in a situation where she was as comfortable as possible with the decision that was ultimately made by the medical practitioner. What we're dealing with now is a completely different set of problems. We're talking about uh, decisions that people have to make about their own lives and their own bodies. Uh, we're talking about much more sort of complete medical information than what was available at the time. And we're, we're talking about active decision-making. So that's one problem with this whole philosophy of non-directive counseling is that it's not up to the task. The other problem with non-directive counseling is that it's not non-directive because these counselors work in a setting of cancer centers. Mostly they, they, they practice as part of a trial involving genetic testing, and they are single-mindedly focused on cancer prevention. So basically the idea is to discuss what's a good measure to prevent cancer, and it doesn't really address the life needs of the patient at all. My issue was, among other things, with the recommendation for a preventive oophorectomy, the removal of the ovaries, which is much more common and much more readily made by the genetic counselors than the suggestion of a prophylactic mastectomy. The reasons why this is easier for the genetic counselors to suggest are obvious. It's, uh, first of all, an oophorectomy is a much less invasive and serious operation than a mastectomy with reconstruction. And second, it's invisible. And women have an easier time sort of thinking about the removal of the ovaries than they have about thinking about the removal of the breasts. So suggesting to somebody that she should have her healthy breasts removed often feels like an attack on, on femininity and, and beauty and sort of on what makes us women. In your book, you were also breastfeeding your daughter still. Or your daughter, was it at the same time, I believe? Yes, my daughter was two years old at the time and she was still breastfeeding. And granted, the idea of removing one's breasts, especially when one is in the process of breastfeeding, sounds absolutely insane when there's nothing wrong with them. And in fact, they demonstrate on a daily basis that there's nothing wrong with them. At the same time, the impact of, uh, of a mastectomy on a woman's health and her future life is much less profound than the impact of a surgical menopause, which results from the removal of the ovaries. Uh, and I didn't find really any counselors who were willing to discuss this in any kind of professional setting. Some of them were willing to discuss this privately. And in fact, when I said to one counselor, after I had sort of made my decision, after I had come through the mastectomy and not the oophorectomy, once I had told her about my decision-making process, she said, yes, uh, women really have a difficult time recovering from the after-effects of oophorectomy and surgical menopause. And in fact, generally, women don't recover completely. There are a lot of difficulties connected with surgical menopause. First of all, there are cognitive problems, memory problems, sleep deprivation and depression. Uh, the risks of those are extremely high. There are also other health risks that are associated with surgical menopause. And I'm not aware of any studies that attempt to compare the benefits of oophorectomy with the drawbacks. And these health risks are increased uh, risk of heart disease, high blood pressure, etc. all sorts of things that kick in after menopause and that kick in earlier and more drastically for women who undergo surgical menopause. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and I'm speaking with Masha Gessen, the author of Blood Matters, a book about her personal discovery of the BRCA gene and her investigation of medicine's ethical and practical role in the new technology of genetic medicine. Your story, I mean, you chose eventually to have a bilateral mastectomy, correct? Right. And can you tell us what finally got you to make your choice? What finally got me to make my choice, aside from all sorts of rational arguments, which I cite in the book and which I've partly just gone through, was also, um, I'm quite aware of sort of the emotional background of having watched my mother die of breast cancer. I did not watch my great aunt die of ovarian cancer. I, I, I knew her, remembered her, but I wasn't by her side. But the emotional meaning of breast cancer was much more immediate for me. And so it was clear that my fear of breast cancer was greater. In all sorts of ways, it seems still more real to me. 
In addition, what I found happening after I tested positive for the mutation was that I had become a professional patient. I carried a cancer center patient card. I went in for screenings every three months. And the way it worked was that I would have a mammogram or I would have an MRI every three months. And then the MRI would always find something. There would be a mass. And then I would have to schedule a biopsy. And then I would have to wait a couple of weeks for the biopsy. And then after the biopsy, I would have to wait a couple of weeks for the results. And then about the time that I got my results and I learned that it was benign and breathed a sigh of relief, it was around time to schedule my next screening. And so I felt like I was on this conveyor belt that had a preordained conclusion. I mean, the end of the conveyor belt was a diagnosis of cancer when I would have the mastectomy, chemotherapy, and radiation. And I thought, well, maybe I should get off this conveyor belt and have the mastectomy without the chemotherapy, without the radiation, without the diagnosis of cancer. And just stop, just just stop this fear, stop the lying awake in the early morning hours thinking about it, and uh, stop the roller coaster where the closer it got to my screening date, the more I was convinced that I had cancer. You also wrote a lot in the book about other genetic illnesses and counseling and some of the ethical issues involved. I was particularly struck by the idea of testing for children who are deaf and that they don't do this in Israel where they do a lot of genetic testing. Can you talk about that? That's one of the many, many tricky ethical issues that come up as we learn about uh, more and more mutations. The deafness mutation just happens to be a very clear example. There's a lot known about various mutations in the Ashkenazi Jewish community for a variety of reasons, and one of them causes congenital deafness, and it's, it's quite common. So when the counselors at Hadassah Medical Center in Jerusalem learned that the test was now available, they actually decided not to put it on the list of available tests for pregnant women. Not to put it on the list along, alongside tests as um, Tay-Sachs, Canavans, Neiman-Pick, Bloom syndrome, all sorts of uh, so-called Jewish diseases or rather genetic diseases that are um, more common among Ashkenazi Jews than in other populations, some of which are extremely severe and lead to early death, and some of which are actually manageable. A person can, can live a full life. Deafness doesn't fall, in a sense, into either category. It's not an adult-onset disease. It's not a disease, uh, in a way. It's a condition that somebody is born with. But it ultimately became the issue was that it places a huge burden on the family. And the people who ended up seeking the deafness test, despite the fact that it wasn't on the list, uh, you could still ask your doctor for it, were people who already had one or more deaf children. And raising a deaf child is basically full-time occupation. It's also a huge drain on the family in terms of financial resources. And some families basically have to admit that they can't afford to have more deaf children. It's an absolutely heartbreaking predicament for a family to be in. Because in a sense, they're creating the possibility of rejecting a child for something that affects a child that they already have. In the time that we have, I, I think your book is fabulous, and I learned more about genetics than i would known through my 30 years of medical career. Can you give a message to our American listeners, most of whom are primary care doctors, about when they're confronted with a patient, even before they send a patient to genetic counseling, obviously I think they should read your book, what should they know and what should they say to people from a human point of view? Um, first of all, thank you very much. Well, I think there's, there's sort of a dual message, and it's almost contradictory. I think on the one hand, there's an attitude in the medical community that places genetic testing of all sorts into a category of its own. And I think that that sort of medical attitude is at this point falling behind the practice and behind the culture. Genetic testing is very quickly becoming just a part of diagnostic testing in all sorts of ways. Among other things, in the way that people like me, who are um, well-informed but not as well-informed as our doctors, think about it. We think about it as a way of making a diagnosis. We don't make find distinctions about the fact that we get something years and years before symptoms set in, although that's, that's also a very questionable way of defining genetic testing because, of course, something like HIV testing 
is special for the same reasons, but it's not offered with the same kinds of restrictions. So that's, that's one thing. But the other thing is that this information can indeed be completely overwhelming. And I think that there are communities popping up all over the Internet that help people deal with this kind of information that we're not used to dealing with. It's, it's a little bit like going to your doctor and, and having a fortune told. We're not quite prepared for that. The culture is catching up, but the conversation is sort of not quite there yet. I asked my counselors whether there was a support group. This was four years ago. There wasn't a support group, which is striking. Now there are support groups out there, and I think doctors should make themselves aware of them. Thank you. Masha, thanks for being our guest today and telling us about your personal journey and your book, Blood Matters. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD is here for you, the health professionals who care for your patients. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, where our newly redecorated website uh, and our on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library, including this show. Register on the website, and we thank you for listening.